Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Our latest chapter chronicles the Thin White Duke, David Bowie's most infamous and unsettling character. He's been described as a dapper yet deadly European aristocrat, an icy amoral zombie, or an emotionless Aryan ubermensch, depending on who you ask. David himself would describe him as, quote, a nasty character indeed, which is pretty much all you need to know. The Duke makes his grand entrance on the title track to Bowie's landmark 1976 album, Station to Station, and today I'm thrilled to talk to a guy who's responsible for much of the searing guitar work, Mr. Earl Slick. Now, in case you didn't know, Earl is a bona fide rock legend, and Bowie's just a part of his remarkable resume. That's him playing on John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Double Fantasy, and he's also played with David Coverdale, Robert Smith, Ian Hunter, and so many more, not to mention his own solo work. Until the pandemic, he was about to mount a tour with Sex Pistols founding bassist Glenn Matlock. He was just 21 when he got the gig to play with Bowie on 1974's Diamond Dogs tour, filling the spot recently vacated by Mick Ronson. He went on to become one of Bowie's go-to guitarists and most frequent collaborators, playing on Young Americans, Station to Station, Heathen, Reality, and also the Secret Sessions for the Next Day in 2012. He's also performed with them on stage for an untold number of gigs spanning 30 years. I was so happy to talk with him about Bowie and also another mutual favorite, the Beatles, and also lots and lots of guitars. Any gearheads out there need to check out his line of guitars on guitarfetish.com. I swear this is not a paid endorsement, but they are so damn cool. You may not be able to sound like Earl Slick, but at least you can kind of look like him. Oh yeah, while we're on the subject, I have a confession to make. In addition to being a guitar god, Earl Slick is a pretty snazzy dresser. I didn't want to feel underdressed, so I wore a leather jacket for our Zoom call, and I realized after the fact that it crinkled throughout. Rookie mistake. Apologies in advance. Let that be a lesson to any aspiring journalists out there. Don't try to be cool. Or at very least, condition your leather jacket. Anyway, hope you enjoy. 
I guess I guess I should say, before diving into all the Bowie stuff, I guess the best place to begin is uh, one day in particular. And I'll, I'll, I'll say uh, February 9th, uh, 1964, a very special day for, for music lovers everywhere. It sounds like that's where it all started for you. My generation of players, probably, yeah. I mean, for me, definitely. It's a weird thing because we really weren't terribly aware of the Beatles up to that point. You know, I was, what, 12 or 13 years old, something like that, you know, um, and I really hadn't gotten into, I wasn't a music fan per se yet, you know, but after seeing that show that night, it was weird, man. I mean, it's hard to describe it. I mean, you, you see it, you know, like way secondhand or, you know, but if you were there, I mean, it was like something you'd never seen before, you know what I mean? And it, and it just, and the, and the weird thing about it was, is it hit everybody at the same time, the same way. Yeah. Like overnight it happened, literally. What was it? Was it just the, the, the exuberance? Was it the sound? Was it all the above? What, what was it that really spoke to you about just seeing them? You know, Trying to put myself back in my head back then, what we saw, it hit a nerve, really hit a nerve. And the next day when we went to school, that's all anybody was talking about. And, and you know, we all, I mean, at the time, my hair was very short, but I remember before I went to school, I got a comb and I was trying to brush down what little <laughs> bit, I had, you know, I had really short hair. And so did everybody else. And And then within days of us seeing that, we were all putting to nobody could play anything, but we were putting bands together. Okay, you'll be the bass player, you'll be the guitar player. This guy, will, you know what I mean? We would, we it was instantaneous. Uh, and then what also happened was is because that the way that they presented the band, especially on the TV show, you already had picked your favorite Beatle. You know that was a big thing. <laughs> You a Paul guy, or you a John guy, you a Ringo guy, or you a George guy? You know that that and um, yeah, it, you know you know what I think it was too is that growing up and being in grade school in the fifties and into the early sixties, uh, it wasn't like there was anything of ours, you know, other than you know mm. kids playing little league and shit like that. There wasn't anything that was really ours. You know, and and um, it was also very, very straight laced period of time. So. Even as much, if not more than the music, it was the clothes they were wearing, the haircut they had, the screaming, <laughs> the whole thing, you know, and it was like, holy shit. Who were some of your uh, when you first picked up a guitar and started playing, who were some of your guitar guiding lights, the Bo Diddley's and the Chuck Berry's and the Lightning Hopkins. Who 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 really uh, were the people that you really wanted to to emulate when you were first starting? When I first started, because um, the the Stones were not very far, you know, it, it was pretty maybe a few months, and then the Stones hit. Uh, with the Beatles, it got me inspired to pick up a guitar. But the Stones is what really did it. I mean, it started off with, um, you know, Brian Jones, Keith Richards. And then in short order, I found myself gravitating right to Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, uh, 
all, you know, it went, I, I went there. That's where I, but obviously think about it. I'm listening to the Stones. Oh, the Yardbirds too, which came after that. The ones I gravitated towards, because the Beatles got my attention. But what really sort of drove it home were the, the British blues-based bands. Mm. And because of them, I started to explore where they got it from. Go right and to the source. That was my love from the blues came from that. So it's late 60s, early 70s, and you're playing in bands out in Staten Island, BoJack. And uh, how did you go from playing Staten Island to playing with Bowie? Can you take me through that, that journey? Uh, you know, when we started off playing on Staten Island, um, we did what all kids then did anyway. You know, you, you started off putting together these little bands and you'd be playing at people's like parties in their basement. And then you start playing high school dances. And then, you know, you started, uh, thinking about playing in the bars, you know, uh, and it, it just progressed. And then at one point we realized that there was life outside of Staten Island. So we started getting gigs in, in, in the city, in the village. And I just started meeting people, you know, and um, one of the guys that was part of our little crew on Staten Island was a, a, a guy named Hank DeVito. And he played um, pedal steel, which which was kind of odd. But he was um, he was in a different crowd of people. Uh, too, and and he was actually uh, playing with Michael Kamen, the you know the big film dude um, before he was a big film dude, and I met Michael through him, and uh, I I got I got the gig with Bowie be, because I took a roadie gig with somebody else. That's how I got the gig, because. My instincts told me, and also I was getting bored with the whole Staten Island thing. I'm going, man, somehow I, I put together that, you know, if we're just going to keep doing cover songs that I don't even like <laughs> and playing in these bars, uh, we're going to get stuck here. I'm going to get stuck here. So I started hanging out with, with uh, Hank more often. And then uh, I met Michael through him and then Michael took a liking to me. So he would use me on sessions here and there, you know, when I was really young. And um, at one point I'd asked Hank because because they were doing um, Mike had a band called the Rock and Roll, New York Rock and Roll Ensemble. Yeah. Right. And and they had a record contract at one point. Uh, they were broken up by now. But but Michael was doing solo gigs. But these were real gigs like. You know, you flew on an airplane to get there and you stayed in a hotel, you know, and he had part of Paul Butterfield's rhythm section was in the band. Oh, man. Uh, and um, David Sanborn was a sax player. Whoa. So I took the roadie gig on and um, at sound checks, I always brought my guitar with me. And at the sound checks, I started jamming with the band and, and really hit it off jamming with Sanborn. And at one point, Sanborn suggested to Michael that I should be, you know, playing in the band. So Michael offered it to me. And so me and Michael became very close and we would do that and some other projects. So when the Bowie, when he had met Bowie in 74, uh, it's right when Mick Ronson had quit and David was looking for a guitar player and he mentioned it to Michael and Michael threw my name in the hat. So that's how I got the gig. And the audition, it sounds like the audition... It was pretty unusual. It almost sounds like something out of like James Bond meeting Blofeld or something. You go to the studio 
And it was just like an empty studio, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I never had done an audition before, so I, I didn't oh, wow. really know what to expect. But what I, what I, what I thought was uh, that I'd show up and there'd be a band in there and David Bowie would be in there and there might be other people and I would get my chance to play. That's what I thought. But that wasn't what happened. I got to RCA Studios, recording studios in New York City. And um, when I got there, David's uh, personal assistant met me and um, didn't, I didn't see anybody but her. And, and she shuffled me into the main recording room and there was an amp there and some headphones. She goes, oh, just put the headphones on. So I put the headphones on. And uh, I get instructions from this disembodied voice, uh, which, which, was, which was Tony Visconti. They were mixing Diamond Dogs. So I put the headphones on. And he says, we're just going to play some tracks. Just play along. I didn't know what these tracks were. I didn't know anything. So that's what I did for a little while. 20 minutes, maybe. No key, no anything. Just play. Just just Nothing. play what you feel. Nothing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, I don't know, 20 minutes later, half hour later, uh, they go, wait a minute. And then Bowie walks in the room, said hi. We sat down. He grabbed the guitar. We just noodled around and shot the shit for a little while. And then I was done. And, you know, they said, uh, said we'll give you a call in the next couple of weeks because we're auditioning more guys. I said, OK, whatever. Um, as it turns out, they did call me the next day. So I didn't have to wait, you know. <laughs> they liked you right away. Yeah. What, that must have been a strange tour to start on just because, I mean, you know, you think of the Diamond Dogs tour, you think of the, the choreography, the staging, the just everything being re- almost like a Broadway production. How was that for you? Did you feel confined? Was it almost like, wait, this isn't a rock show. This is like a Broadway style thing. Or was that was that fun or both? Both. Um, the fun part was just the fact of the kind of guys I was working with, you know, the band, you know, because Sanborn was brought into that band. Mike Garson was already in the band. Yeah. Uh, Oh, Tony Newman and Herbie Flowers were the rhythm section, you know. So these were guys, these were the top dudes. Uh, but as far as the gig went, it was fucking weird because I wouldn't, I, I mean, first of all, rock bands didn't do those kind of shows back then. That was something kind of new. There was no Pink Floyd wall, nothing like that. So um, wrapping my head around being part of that, it felt like, first of all, uh, David had, well, you know what the Diamond Dogs tour was. You know, you know what the show was. So there was a set. There were costumes. It was all this stuff. And like right before rehearsals, I find myself at David's suite in the city with a, with a hairdresser getting all my hair cut off. Oh. <laughs> and then I'm trying on these clothes that they had made. And it was all like, I'm going, wow. I finally got in this really famous big rock band and the first thing he do is make me cut my hair and wear a suit. <laughs> they did it all backwards. Yeah. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made, and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, 
ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There was an interview you gave where somebody asked you, you know, what was your favorite onstage moment? And you just said, any show with Bowie, just pick a gig. What was it about being on stage with, 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 with Bowie, I guess, through the years that that was so special? What was it like to read him on stage and just that interplay like? You know, coming from where I was before I got to gig with Bowie, I had some miles on me because, you know, I'd been playing live for a while before I got that gig. So I'd done everything from a lot of bars to with Cayman, you know, we were doing maybe 2,000 seaters. So I add a little bit of that, but not to the extent of, I mean, to be honest with you, when I got in the Diamond Dogs tour, uh, the atmosphere around Bowie was, it was definitely in the realm of the Beatlemania thing, because Mm. that's when, because he'd already finished Ziggy, right? The Ziggy thing had come and gone. And um, he was huge. That's when David was, he really, that was when he really broke through. So all of that was there and the size of the crowds, you know, 20,000 seats, Man. you know, and this huge organization of roadies and staff and the band. And, and it was like, wow, you know, so the excitement level was there 24 hours a day, you know, 
And, you know, he um, being the dynamic performer that he was, um, you know, that that energy really just permeated the whole thing. Yeah. I was, um, you, you were mentioning the band earlier. I was lucky enough to speak to, to Mr. Ken Scott, the his co-producer mm-hmm. on uh, all those great albums. Uh, and he spoke a great deal about David's sort of, his, his skills, brilliance at putting people together and choosing people for what they were able to do and letting them do what they were good at and their skill set and putting everybody together and having this sort of almost social alchemy in a way. Uh, did, did you experience that with him? I mean, just with, with, with putting bands together and groups of people together. Uh, yeah. What was he mm-hmm. like as a, as a, as a leader? Yeah, it was, um, it wasn't evident at the time. Cause I, at that point I, I had, didn't have enough experience to realize what was going on, but in hindsight, and then all the years after that, I think why David's bands and his records were the way they were is that Everybody that was involved was there for a specific talent that they had. You know what I mean? It wasn't like we were session guys. It, you know, I had my thing and this guy had his thing. And, and that's why you were there. You were not there to put on different hats. You were there to be you. I I just wore the Earl Slick hat. (laughs) Tony Newman wore the Tony Newman hat. We were there for specific, and it wasn't just, how he played, it was the whole package. You know, there were certain things that, that he wanted, that, that he saw, your personality, your, the way you dressed, the way you carried yourself, your playing, he, the package, that's why you were there. Midway through the Diamond Dogs tour, you go into the studio in Philadelphia and start cutting what would become Young Americans. Very, very different sound, going from this kind of glam rock sound to, you know, Philly soul and, 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 and just R&B and, and funk. How did you feel about that at the time? How did you feel about that shift? Did it sort of blindside you in a way or what was that like for you? Uh, yeah, it kind of did because I was no stranger to R&B because I mean, you know, I played a lot of it. Uh, when we were doing a, a lot of the clubs in New York back before Bowie, when, when I was doing all that, you played you know, these bar gigs, um, some bar gigs, they expected you to do like the top 20 hits, whatever they were. But there were specific clubs in the city that um, they they really, uh, their whole thing was about, let, let's say, uh, what you would call soul. You know, so you would play James Brown stuff and then you do Memphis stuff. Like there would be Eddie Floyd and Sam and Dave. So I played a lot of it, you know, uh, but when we did David's thing, it was more more of the pop kind of R&B stuff. And also it was such a departure from the rock and roll stuff that I was disappointed because it really didn't leave me much room to do much as a guitarist. Mostly for people like Carlos Alomar and kind of getting that type of guitar playing in there. That's Carlos territory. That's yeah. what Carlos that shines, you know. Do you have any any favorite memories from this, that session? Because, well, <laughs> let me put it this way. I, wanted, I was going to ask you about, because I know Fame is on that album. I was going to ask you about playing with, with, with John Lennon. Uh, but I was doing a little research, and there's some debate <laughs> about whether you actually played with John Lennon. Well, yes. Uh, I'm told I was there. The credits say I was there. <laughs> John Lennon said I was there. 
I don't remember. And he, Fucked up, huh? <laughs> no, man. Did, did he did did he, he bust your chops for that later, or when when you're playing oh, yeah. on Double Fantasy? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had fun with that. <laughs> he must have loved that because I'm sure that doesn't happen very often to him. No, and I think the fact that I had the balls to tell him that I didn't remember, he liked. <laughs> oh man, I mean, I, I. When you're when you're first starting to play with somebody of a, of a Bowie or a Lennon caliber, when you first enter the room with them, how do you how do you connect with those guys initially? Because I imagine after you know five ten years of that level of fame, they must have some degree of protection. I'll call it armor. Uh, how do you get through that and just 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 get to hang with them on a, on a personal level and kind of get them to set that down? You know, everybody's a little different from the next guy. Mm. With David. Um, well, he would be, well, obviously the first person of that caliber that I was exposed to, to work with. And, um, on a personal level, man, this is a, this is a, this is a funny one because it's hard to describe it in a way. Uh, he was in his own world, you know, so it wasn't like you would get in a band with the guys and all of a sudden you're hanging out and doing that. Once, you know, you know, when we first started, you know, he called me out of the blue and said, hey, I'm going to see Roxy Music tonight. You want to go to the show? Yeah. Stuff like that. But that was by design in hindsight, because he liked elements of that. And so if, 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 if he invited me to a show, a lot of times it had to do with him wanting me to see that show because mm. it may relate to what we were doing. You know what I mean? That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but. You know, when you meet people, when you work with people like that, um, like I said, they're all different. Uh, John Lennon was like being in a band with one of the dudes. You know, it was it was it was a, it hit it hit a personal note right out of the gate where with Bowie, it didn't. And as time went on with David, um, I didn't really pursue a friendship thing. You know what I mean? Um my instincts told me that, and my instincts were right. Because one thing about David, uh, I don't think you could, you could be his friend. I don't think he was capable of it, whereas John was. Just with everything he had going on, or just as a person, just you it's think him. That, it yeah. was him. Yeah. Uh, in the later years, um, there were there were uh, more occasions because we knew each other so long as the years went on and so well that we would have like personal conversations. And it was, and also in the later years, the drugs were gone from all of us. So it was, you know what I mean? It lent itself more to having something other than a cocaine fueled hangout. <laughs> I, I guess, I suppose on that topic, uh, one of my favorite albums of all time, bar none, is Station to Station. And for, for that album, there's a lot of mythology that surrounds that album. Uh, you know, according to lore, Bowie around that time is almost like this Brian Wilson figure, this kind of mysterious figure. What were those sessions actually like when, when you were in the room with them? Because I imagine, I mean, it's, it's such a, especially the title track, it's such a complicated track. I imagine that the, the planning that must have gone into that must have been immense. Funny, there was no planning going into that track because that <laughs> that that when we went to make that record, uh, a lot of the stuff was the material was basically half written. It was a work in progress, <clears throat> and I, the title track 
was two, if not three, separate pieces that he had floating around that we basically, as we were going through it, he, he was pulling like half finished things and we were gluing them together. And that's how that track happened. If you listen to it, you can hear it. Yeah, it's like a mini opera. It's like a quick one yeah. while he's away or something. It starts off with that real dirty dirge at the beginning. Then it's all up-tempo at the end. And it's got that little weird thin white dupe bit in there. It was it was chunks glued together. And somehow he managed to turn it into a, a, a song, you know? <laughs> it's amazing how he could be that out there, yet still not alienate people like it still is so accessible and so just I mean you could say that about everything anything he ever does I mean he definitely he, he brings you along for the ride but he never really alienates I don't think no I think you're right um you know I, I think what you have to take into consideration is where our whole society was at the time where mm. the music business was at the time where the fans were at the time how how uh, how young we were at the time, you know, it was a different world entirely. That world is not even remotely close to this world in terms of of music and bands. Yeah, different. I mean, not even different ball game, different fucking world. <laughs> different so, sport. You know, there was no with him, which is one of the things I like. There was never some, uh, you didn't go in the studio when we started station. It wasn't some kind of big plan. Like this is the kind of record we're going to make. And this is how we're going to, nah, we just went in there and, and it, I don't think this is funny about what I've thought about station to station many times as I go, you know what? We didn't really make a record. The record happened. <laughs> we were just there. I mean, if that makes any sense, Spontaneity, just organic, just yeah. build up around you. Yeah. What did you play on that? Was that your '64 SG uh, SG Junior? Uh, some of it's that. A lot of it is. Uh, I think it was a 1970 or 70. It was an early '70s. Um, Les Paul, black mm. one. And I had. Uh, also a 1974 Les Paul uh, anniversary model, a white one. Oh man, yeah. what was your rig back then? I mean, this that sound is just oh my god! I've, I've <laughs> playing at home by myself. I've been trying to figure out, and I and I'm completely well, lost. <laughs> simple as it gets, man. It was just a, a 100 watt Marshall half stack, and and you know before I don't know if we're gonna talk techie shit here, but. <clears throat> It was before they were using the master volumes to drive the the distortion. So okay. to make that amp break up, you had to crank it. And that was it. That was the rig. That and um, my pedal board on Diamond Dog's tour, my pedal board consisted of one MXR Phase 90 pedal. That was it. That was it. <laughs> wow. So it was, it was straight into the amp. Wow, that is wild. Oh, man. But I mean, yeah, I guess it was all it was all in your fingers then at that point. It wasn't like. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, you know, you learn how to play guitar 
and you have the tools in front of you, your main tools, right? In that case, it was just a guitar and an amp. It wasn't like we started off with a pedal board. So basically, you had to get what you wanted to get with a guitar, amp, and your fingers and your ears. I can't mention station to station without stay. Good Lord. That is an absolutely incredible track. I mean, how did that that track uh, build up around you? That track, um, it's funny. Uh, you're probably, well, you're, you're a Bowie dude. Um, you're familiar with John, I'm only dancing. Oh yeah. Okay. He wanted to redo it. He wanted to get a new arrangement for it and record it. And, um, we did actually, uh, we did some rehearsals for that album, not per se, like, uh, it was more of a loosen the band up. You know, we booked a rehearsal place and, and, and basically he brought these chunks of ideas and he just wanted to fool around with them to get a feel to see what we were doing. And um, so we started messing around with uh, John and um, he wanted a new arrangement. So he said, can you come up with a lick or something? And we could use that maybe and base a new arrangement of John, I'm only dancing off that lick. So the lick was born. And then instead of being John, it turned into stay. If, if you, you play, right? A little bit, a little bit. Um, if you listen to John, I'm only dancing and then listen to stay back to back and listen to the chorus and listen to the chords. Wow. It's yeah. the same. I never put that together. Wow. Do it. It's the same. It's the same bit. So oh, what was going to be a rearranged John Amoli dancing turned into stay? That is, I mean, that track is amazing. Is there a song that you did with David that, that you're the most proud of? Yeah, I mean, through the years, I wouldn't say there's any one. But, um, you know, like, as far as albums go, because of the way it all went down and what I contributed to its station would be my go-to Bowie album for me. Um, yeah. And I I can always go by the ones I love to play. Those would be, and, and off of that album, uh, I love playing all of them, but I always loved doing Station Live, even more than Stay. I love doing Stay, but because Station is such a weird trip. Yeah. You know? Uh, and then over the years, uh, when we when I started making records with him again in the 2000s, the last album we did, last album he did, band album that he did was the next day. And I love Valentine's Day on that. That's one of my favorites. And we never played that live because it wasn't written while we were still playing. Oh, that, that solo on that, that that Dave Davies lick is so great. I, I love oh, that. You picked up on that. Oh <laughs> my God. Yeah, that's that's I think my favorite track on on the next day. That I mean, that's such a, a funny period to have worked with him from, you know, 74 to, to 2012, 2013. I mean, something I love about David's music is that it just, it evolves so rapidly, like the Beatles, you know? I mean, the Beatles, you go 18 months, you got Rubber Soul to Sgt. Pepper, same with David. How did he change? What changes did you pick up on when you started working with him again in the, in the 2000s? Had he, has his approach to music changed drastically or not really? No. Um... The way he recorded and did all that with us didn't change. 
The only thing that did change was the technical part of it, because with the new recording techniques, it, we weren't always all in the same room at the same time recording those new records. Like when I did um, the next day, I didn't play on, I played on, I think, two basic tracks. Because uh, I was, well, I was in the room when he brought Valentine's Day in and played it on acoustic and left it to me to come up with what I came up with. You know, because he, you know, the way he would do it a lot of times, he would just come and play on an acoustic, goes, what are you hearing? You got any ideas off the cuff? I said, I hear kinks all over that fucking thing. <laughs> and he's, and you know, he lit up. And so that's what we did. So it's like you had mentioned earlier that he brought people into the fold for specific reasons of what they did. And, and so to get the best out of somebody, you, you, you don't steer them in some kind of weird direction, like, or, or a direction that you don't think that they can go in or, you know, bottom line is, is you know what the guy does and start there. So from that point of view, uh, his working methods with me, let's say, never changed. I, I spoke with, uh, I was lucky enough to speak with, with Gail Ann Dorsey, and she was talking about how he would he would push, but gently. He would push you yeah. right into out, outside your comfort zone, but in a way that helped you grow and not tried to make you something that you weren't. Well, you know what? He had, uh, he had a really good understanding of what he could and couldn't get out of somebody. Mm. He and his instincts told him when we did Station to Station that I could be pushed further in the direction we took that record. And he was absolutely right. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You played with David off and on for nearly 40 years. Did he ever articulate, either through words or actions, what it was that he loved about your playing? Like, why he kept coming back to you? Or was it really just the whole package and feel? No, it was an understanding. And uh, and he did say things. I remember when we, um, the first day, uh, in, two, in the summer of 2012, when we went in to do the next day, I hadn't seen him for a few years. And I walked in the studio and he said, oh, rock and roll is still here. <laughs> so he liked that element of me, you know, because he would, you know, you would, he would insinuate little Keith things with me, you know. Mm. You were the Keith to his, uh, his Mick. Yeah. You know, because if you look at all of the guitar players over the years, I don't think there wasn't a David Bowie guitar type of a person. Yeah. I mean, if you want to take me and compare that to Fripp or Blue or even Mick, me and Mick were more on the same page, but still the element was different, you know? On the, the Serious Moonlight Tour and the Reality Tour, you were playing songs from throughout his discography, some 30 years, and he obviously changed the sound a great deal. Was it ever a challenge to play songs that span so many different styles and genres and in many cases were played by different people? It, you know what? It it would have been a challenge if I had to cover those guys' bases. Matter of fact, I would have been screwed if I had to do that because it's all it's a different ballgame. Uh, and that's why we had two completely different kind of guitar players on the mm. stage. You know, Jerry Leonard and myself don't play at all alike. And, and he also... Jerry loves all that electronic stuff and all that. So, you know, he covered that and I covered the other stuff. So you weren't being pulled in a direction where you were just going to drown in the middle of all that shit. <laughs> Is there a, um, a snapshot in your mind that you have that really just sums up or encapsulates uh, your time with David, all your, your years with him in the studio or on the stage? Wow. It's a hard question. I know, it's an awful long time and an awful lot of memories, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, the only thing I could say out of all of those years was as compatible as we were as guys on and off stage, it was one thing that will stand out. It's a good question, by the way. Um, one thing that will stand out is how locked in 
and connected we were at times on stage and in the studio and how maybe from the outside looking in, people would perceive things that hair differently, whereas as close as we could get at those times, we were that far away most of the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, coexisting in the same orbit, but never. Yeah, once in a while though, that, that really direct connection would happen and some magical shit would come out of that, you know, especially, you know, and, and more on stage than in the studio, but even in the studio it would happen. But, you know, we were, we, we were by no means uh, operated the same way, but we did have some similarities. And when it came to uh, personal level stuff, neither one of us, and I'm still like this, we, we, we're not the easiest people to get close to, let's put it that way. Which is probably why, after all of those years, me and David never had a personal problem, ever. And I'm not going to mention any names, but boy, there was a couple of situations over the years where that went wrong for some people. And it wasn't by design from my end. I just, my instincts were, don't get too close to this motherfucker. (laughs) Is it going to go wrong? A lot, a lot of heat there, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you had an understanding. It was, and that's probably something he appreciated about you. He had probably had so many people that were trying to get to him. You know what? You're absolutely right. And that was never stated verbally, but I know damn well that, that was appreciated. And what I appreciated was the fact that he never hid the fact that he could be the most inconsistent person on the planet. Uh, whereas you know, you'll come off a tour, like Sirius Moonlight tour. And he says, oh, because we finished that in uh, end of the year. It was like uh, December or something like that of 83. And he, and um, so we're getting ready to jump into 1984. And he goes, hey, Slicky, yeah, we're going to go I'm back in the studio in January. So you got like a month off and we're back in. Never heard from him. <laughs> and you just, and that was okay. And, and you know what? Man, it wasn't really okay, okay, but it was no surprise. Yeah. Wasn't like I went, wow, man, what happened? Now I go, oh, there he goes again. So I would move on and do something else, knowing that if and when we ever connected again, we'd be right back to that good spot that we always had. And that's exactly what happened. Did you, yeah, I was going to ask, did you just fall right back in the place after all those years, like a, you know, like a, a, a comfy pair of shoes or something? Yeah, because, you know, uh, and I've seen this and you've seen this, too, in life is um, when things like that happen. Right. Um, for instance, you know, I don't I'm I'm told we're going in the studio in a month and, and I don't hear anything from them. Sure. I was a little pissed off, you know, but. Thinking about it, when we did reconnect again, first of all, nothing was said about it. There was no reason to say anything about it. And it's like it never happened. Yeah. And it was like when we did the next day, I hadn't heard from him for a while. And unbeknownst to me, he'd been in the studio on and off for a year before he called me to do that record. And this is how weird this shit is. I ended up on that record by a complete twist of fate because you know i had been in touch with the other band members because we were all friends 
and they'd been in recording. Like Jerry Lennon was doing the guitars and Sterling was playing. And uh, because they had to sign an agreement and shut up, they couldn't <laughs> tell me they were doing it. And these are my buddies, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you don't get pissed off about it. It is what it is. But um, so and I've told this story before. You might I might be repeating myself. If I am, you can stop me. But in July. No, actually, it was around April or so, maybe April or May of 2012. I was in New Jersey sitting in at this blues club and I went. I have a friend. He's a doctor. <laughs> and uh, he also this guy does everything. He's a surgeon. But he built his own airplane, okay? He does this kind of shit. And he flies it. I've been in the plane with him. And he built a Cobra. No. You know? Yeah? Like Shelby? Yes. Oh, man. So it was a really nice day, you know? It must have been around the spring because I remember it, it was, the trees were already in. And, and he said, Let me, hey, let's drive to the, to, the, to the gig in this. I said, fuck yeah, cool. We get in the car. Something had been done wrong with the fuel system. Uh -oh. Long story short, we're driving the car and I start seeing smoke coming up the hood and the car's not running very well. We get out of the car and within 60 seconds, the car is gone. It, it went up in flames. Jesus. And so, and this is in the middle of the afternoon in Montclair, New Jersey, right? <laughs> Which is a very, it's all doctors and lawyers' houses, right? And, you know, there's a fire department, the cops, and there were some press people there. And one of them pinned me, because, you know, figured out, who is this guy? Figured it out. So it, the incident hit the internet within an hour. You know, it's not like you have to wait for newspapers to be printed anymore, you uh -huh. know? He tweeted it right out. And David saw it. Uh, and I got an email from David the, the, the next morning. Of, uh, he said, hey, man, I saw the news. What happened? Are you okay? Said, yeah, it's fine. Nobody got hurt, blah, blah, blah. Well, cool. All right, great. Talk to you later, you know. Within a few hours, I got another email. So how are you doing? What are you up to? All right. I'm getting these over a period of about a day or two. I'm going, okay, he's fishing. <laughs> Finally, I said, okay, is there anything you want to talk about? On the e this is all through email, no phone calls. And, and then he drops the bomb on me about making the record. So had I not blown this fucking car up, <laughs> I more than likely would not have been on that record. And that, that's not me exaggerating. Opportunities come in, in strange shapes and sizes, I guess. That is so Bowie. You yeah. know, that's why after all those years, when things would didn't work out where he said they were going to, I didn't I never took it personally. One thing about being around that guy, if you had thin skin, you were in the wrong band. Mm. And it wasn't like he it wasn't like a, a vindictive mean guy. It's just, you know, if you were going to get your feelings hurt because you were asked to play on a record and, and, and nobody bothered to call you, then you're in the wrong place. Or the wrong industry, too. Well, you were in the wrong industry, yeah. <laughs> but with him, it was, it was all the time, you know? Uh, you know, why the hell did, you know, because we had a blowout in 70, 
at the end of 75, early 76, after we did station. That's why I'm not on that. That's why I disappeared. But it had nothing to do with him. It was bus- It was our managers, and it, and it exploded. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a personal thing. I mean, it did get personal, but that wasn't the root of the problem. Uh, so why, after that whole explosion, does he call me back in 1983 to cover the basis for the Sirius Moonlight Tour? You know? There's a reason. Maybe it's the same reason he didn't call me for the other album. Who knows? But, you know, it's the kind of thing that I never really put any thought into because why? You just trust it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the 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 last time that you, you made music together with him? Yeah. It was on the next day. And um, the last, this is funny because it was a funny day. The last track I did, we had cut. I don't know. We we did some basic tracks. Oh, um, you could set the world on fire, or we will set the world on fire. And we'd cut the basic track a few days earlier, and he and we needed to do the solo. I said, "Do my solo," and um, I was distracted uh, by some tech stuff that was going on, and I wasn't locking in that well, you know. And I knew it, you know. And so he started to get. Uh, he started getting impatient in the way that was not normal for him, right? And it pissed me off. So I blew up at him. And so we had this little blow up. I was in the studio in the main room with my headphones on, and he's in the control room. And we, we I really went off. And there was, Visconti was in the room, and a couple of the techs were in the room. The techs froze. <laughs> I was going to say, they must have been terrified. <laughs> froze they i don't i think they were afraid to to breathe and um <laughs> so after that david just threw his hands up right and so i go to Visconti. okay tony try it again all right try it again i nail it one time through right <laughs> so as i play the last note Here's David popping up. I can see him through the glass and he's waving his arms and he hits the key, hits the intercom going, Slinky, that was incendiary. That was fucking great. That's done. Come on in. So I come in. I thought to myself, you know what? This fucking guy pissed me off on purpose. (laughs) Did you do that on purpose? And he just looked at me with this kind of like, you will never know. So that was my last memory of the last day that we ever worked together. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. 
Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.